Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Chad Light portrays Pedro Menendez, founder of St. Augustine, the oldest continuous European settlement in North America. The assignments that he was given, uh, he did very well. He was outstanding, in fact. And as with any successful man, you're just given more to do which he did. Elodie McCready grew up in the Seven Gables House in Fort Pierce and now gives tours of the historic home. We had two double beds and a single bed in that room, so we all had a bed to sleep in. We didn't have to sleep on the floors. A look at the role of women in the American Civil War, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. To Pedro Menendez Marquez, listen to me, nephew. There's one thing that I want you to know. May God see my heart and intentions in Florida. We're listening to a letter written by Pedro Menendez de Avales on September 8, 1574, just nine days before his death. When my mission with the Armada, the subjugation of the heretics in Flanders for the king and for Spain is completed, I have but one desire. After the salvation of my own soul, there is nothing in this world I desire more than to bring myself to Florida and in my days saving souls. Reporting to His Majesty the discontent I bear in being away from Florida, he has done me the grace of telling me that whenever he may grant me license, he will of very good will let me go back to Florida. I hope to God he will do so in the spring, because I have no doubt that this winter the problem of Flanders will be resolved and I will be free to go back to Florida, to never leave Florida as long as I live, because these are my wishes for happiness. If not, I fear that the type of colony I have dreamed of may never materialize. Nevertheless, perhaps the dreams we've had for La Florida will live on in our settlements there to serve as an indelible mark of our endeavors. My legacy. I, Don Pedro Menendez de Aviles, heroic defender of Spain, or tyrant. Throughout the 446th anniversary of the establishment well. of St. Augustine, Chad students, Light brought to life Spaniards, the city's founder, Pedro Menendez de Avilés. Light portrayed Menendez in a one-man theatrical presentation, in a landing reenactment at the Mission Nombre de Dios, and at a 16th century encampment at the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park. There are several aspects to Menendez. First of all, he was a sailor. Um, he spent his entire life on the sea. He was drawn from an early age to the irresistible vocation, as he put it. And that's where he made his fortune, and that's where he made his name. He was the younger son of 20 brothers and sisters, and he was only about eight or nine years old when his father died. So once the hacienda was split up amongst the heirs, all the children ended up poor, and they had to make their own fortunes by their own diligence and the grace of God. He left home when he was nine years old, was brought back, uh, married to his lifelong wife, 
But he soon left home again after that, signed on as a ship's boy under a false name so they couldn't find him this time, and spent the next two years with an armada that was fighting the French pirate fleets. When he returned home, he sold part of what was left of his birthright, which wasn't much, borrowed money, built a small ship, and with family and friends he convinced into it, they became soldiers of fortune. And in the next 20 years was when they made a name for themselves. They became men. And it was then that he was noticed by His Majesty Carlos. And the, the assignments that he was given, uh, he did very well. He was outstanding, in fact. And as with any successful man, you're just given more to do, which he did. Uh, the, the enterprise here in Florida was a bit of a change for him. Uh, he had already been a captain general of the treasure fleet. But the loss of his son Juan compelled him uh, to come to Florida in the hopes that he would be able to find his son. And the being made adelantado was necessary because of his problems with the Casa de Contratación in Sevilla. But he was uh, granted the contract by the king. And that's when the sailor came ashore. Pedro Menendez de Avales became governor of St. Augustine, founding the oldest continuous European settlement in North America in 1565. By the time colonists landed at Jamestown and Plymouth Rock, the people who settled St. Augustine had grandchildren. Menendez and his men vanquished the French from nearby Fort Caroline, securing La Florida for the Spanish. Chad Light has a B.A. in history and a master's degree in psychology, which helped him to prepare to portray Menendez. It's been since uh, the first book by Albert Manusi, but then the work by Dr. Lyons, uh, which is, at this point, the definitive uh, work on the enterprise of Florida and Menendez as a man. Uh, lectures given by Eugene Lyons are available through the St. Augustine Foundation, I relied on those. I relied on his uh, Enterprise of Florida. And it was able, after reading the Enterprise of Florida several times, it was then I was able to appreciate more the works of Solis de Meras, Gonzalo Solis de Meras, his, uh, Pedro Menendez's brother-in-law, and the work of Barrientos, uh, which together uh, form a very uh, clear, if not complete, picture of the events as they unfolded here in Florida in those, uh, in those very epic years of 65, 66, and 67. The celebration of St. Augustine's 446th anniversary was presented by the organization's Florida Living History and the Men of Menendez. Chad Light is a member of the Men of Menendez, which is part of the Florida Historic Militia. The men of Menendez portray the first settlers of St. Augustine at the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park. That's where we spoke with Chad Light in his Menendez costume, surrounded by both colorful peacocks and the all-white variety. The men of Menendez had a campsite nearby. They've been around for uh, 30 years uh, as an organization, but the individuals have been here, some of them their entire, some of them their entire lives, uh, many of them their entire lives. They represent and portray uh, very realistically uh, the uh, civilians and soldiers that were here with Menendez in 1565 and 1566. Um, from September 1565 until May 1566, the first settlement was actually right here on the Fountain of Youth property. And it's been in the last uh, 
few decades when the excavations have been done here that have slowly borne this out. In fact, just a few months ago, they found a portion of the exterior palisade wall that has eluded them for all these years. And Dr. Kathleen Deegan was you know, very, very happy, as were we all. Pedro Menendez de Avales founded St. Augustine on September 8, 1565, a full weekend of festivities celebrating the 446th anniversary of that occasion included the 16th century encampment at the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park and speakers there including archaeologist Kathy Deegan, artist Ted Morris, and historian Eugene Lyon. The landing reenactment was held next door at Mission Nombre de Dios. There's a small wooden boat, and uh, not a rowboat, it's about 20 feet long. Um, it has a mast. We have someone at the tiller. Someone is rowing, uh, both in period dress. And then there is myself and my maestro de campo, my field commander, who it was Pedro Menendez's future son-in-law, who was also named Pedro Menendez, but he was Pedro Menendez de Valdez uh, from a very powerful family in Asturias. We will both be on uh, the boat, they will row up to the shore, and we will get out and step through the mud onto a plank and then onto the yard, at which time there will be a veneration of the cross and the flags, just as Pedro Menendez did when he stepped off that boat 446 years ago. And we know this because of the works by Mendoza de Grajales, uh, who was the priest, and by Menendez's brother-in-law, again, Gonzalo Solis de Meras. The goal of Chad Light and the men of Menendez is to demonstrate what life was like for St. Augustine's earliest European inhabitants. Of the 800 souls that came with Menendez, 600 were soldiers. And so there will be a large soldier contingent, uh, armor, pikes, muskets, arquebus, uh, everyone wearing a sword. Uh, kids always get a kick out of that, especially little boys. But there's also the side of the camp that was the necessary part. Uh, you'll have a large kitchen. Uh, we'll have our dining area. Uh, traditional food will be cooked over open fires in the traditional way. We will have a gentleman there that is teaching people navigation, Quinton, who is himself was a retired sailor. Um, the aspects of life that uh, people see other than the soldiers will all be present. Uh, women will be sewing. Uh, there's uh, beyond the navigation, there's the uh, maps and the explanation of how they lived their day-to-day -day life to be able to do the things that they did. It will all be on display. It's important to recognize the establishment of St. Augustine every year, but 2015 will mark the 450th anniversary of the city. As discussed previously on Florida Frontiers, a commission of federal and state dignitaries has been created to prepare for that milestone. In our adult lifetime, uh, this will only happen to us once. Some of us may see it uh, a 50-year benchmark in our city's birthday uh, more than once in our lifetime, hopefully so. But for us, it's the only time that it will happen as we are adults and can do something to celebrate it. The responsibility is on us. And for many of us, it is it's a passion. It's a passion for the history, it's a passion for the city drawn out of a love for the city, but also a love for Florida and Florida history and telling that story to the world. Chad Light portrays Pedro Menendez de Avales, founder of the city of St. Augustine. In 1563, my only son Juan was returning to Spain from Veracruz as commander of the new Spain contingent. I had trained him up from a boy to be captain. 
but he left Havana for Spain in August of that year in contradiction of my explicit prohibition against sailing during that most dangerous season. His fleet, struck by a mighty storm, was scattered far and wide, and its captaina, along with my beloved son, were lost. Some rumors placed the wreck along the east coast of Florida. As would with any father, my hopes swelled that he may yet be alive, cast away in the wilderness of that peninsula. And so, that hope persisted in my mind. But as if contrived by the devil, my son's shipwreck coincided with my unjust arrest and imprisonment by the Casa de Contratación in Sevilla. To say that I was grief-stricken and frustrated would be a monumental understatement. After great and frustrating delays by envious, slanderous and inept bureaucrats, I escaped to Valladolid and made my audience with the king. I pled my case with his majesty and he granted me a contract to go to Florida. At last, I could look for my son. I was made adelantado of Florida, and from that moment on I would be free from the house of trade in Sevilla, answering only to his majesty. Our adventures in Florida are now well known far and wide. God granted us a swift and total victory over the Lutherans, after which we established seven settlements along the coast of La Florida. San Agustin, San Mateo, San Lucia, Aiz, San Antonio, Tocobaga, and Santa Elena. I made fast allies of all those peoples, all but Satariba, who was clearly still under the spell cast over him by the heretic Lutherans, who he himself fought with. From Tocobaga to Orrista, we made allies with the rest, even the warlike Cacique Carlos. We had returned to us more than 100 castaways, some of whom had been in Florida for more than a decade. But nowhere, nowhere was my one. After searching La Florida for any trace, I had to painfully admit to myself that Juan may never be found. Even still, my heart breaks. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to check out our calendar of events, explore our educational resources, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. If you click on the Join Now button, you'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features Darcy McMahon, Exhibits Director at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Just two miles north of St. Augustine lies a small island in the salt marsh, the site of Fort Mose, our nation's first legally sanctioned free black community. As early as 1686, Spaniards in St. Augustine promised religious sanctuary to enslaved Africans who escaped from English plantations. In 1693, the King of Spain formally proclaimed freedom for the runaways, and by 1738, more than 100 people had arrived, and the Spanish governor established the fort and town of Gracia Real de Santa Teresa de Mose, or Fort Mose. The fort was a military farming and domestic town that eventually included men, women, and children from at least three West African cultures, Latin America, and Native America. 
But not much was known about Fort Mose until the 1980s, when a team led by archaeologist Kathleen Deegan and historian Jane Landers located the town and began to unlock its story. Now a state park, the site of Fort Mose offers a rich view of the African-American experience in Spanish Florida and stands as a monument to freedom. Darcy McMahon is exhibits director at the Florida Museum of Natural History. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Elodie McCready grew up in a large family that lived in the Seven Gables House in Fort Pierce from 1930 to 1948. As Janie Gould explains, now the house is a museum and Mrs. McCready serves as a volunteer guide there every week. The Seven Gables House, with its breezy porch and storied history, has long been a museum on Indian River Drive in Fort Pierce, but it used to be on U.S. 1. It was built as a private dwelling in 1905. By the time John Slay bought it for his large family in 1930, the Great Depression had taken hold. A daughter, Elodie McCready, remembers growing up there. Her brother-in-law, Cookie Eggers, knows the story about how much Slay paid for the house. He paid $10 in an old hot water heater, which later injured my wife when she tried to light it one morning. Why in the world was Mr. Slay able to get the house for such a good price? Cookie, what do you know? As far as I can tell, it was hard times, just about what we're having right now. Yeah, it was hard times. And we're talking about a house that has seven gables and lots of bedrooms, but only one bathroom. And that was for a family of nine children and two parents. Mrs. McCready, tell me about what it was like. You were one of seven girls in the house of seven gables. Well, just like my mother told us, you get in there and do what you have to do and get out. You don't fool around. The bathroom. Yes. So seven girls had to get ready for school at the same time. That's correct. And that was another thing. On the chilly mornings, my father used to build a fire in the fireplace, and we'd all grab our clothes and run in there so we wouldn't be so cold while we were getting dressed. What were the sleeping arrangements? How many bedrooms? Actually, we had three bedrooms, but the one bedroom upstairs at the back was very big. So we had two double beds and a single bed in that room. So we all had a bed to sleep in. We didn't have to sleep on the floors. It was kind of like a dormitory. That's what we called it. And we had a line put up in there. In fact, my father did that where we could hang our clothes. Because, you know, that many girls, back then we didn't wear slacks and shorts like we do today. We all had dresses or skirts and sweaters. So we had clothes hanging from one end of that room to the other. And your parents owned a dry cleaning business, so did the clothes get washed and ironed there? Not the clothes that had to be washed, because my mother had a Maytag washing machine that she washed our underwear and our slips and things. But our good clothes, we took them to the dry cleaners. And you worked there, so you took care of some of your own clothes there. Oh my goodness, yes. I made sure mine got done, especially if I had a date, because I couldn't leave them home, because this one here would put them on and wear them. You're pointing to your sister. My sister Lynette, yes. In fact, a lot of times if what I wanted to wear was home, I'd take it to work with me and then bring it back so I'd be sure I had it. Guarding it from your sister. That's right. At that time, the House of Seven Gables was on US-1. Of course, it was only two lanes. Right across the street from it was this little uh, barbecue place, Lewis's Barbecue. 
And then right next to it was a little shop where this lady made all kinds of little crinkets. It's like a little gift shop. So anytime we were invited to a party, all we'd have to do was call Mrs. Wagner and tell her we were going to a birthday party or a baby party, and she'd have our gift all wrapped for us. So wasn't that nice? Did you go downtown on Saturday to the Sunrise Theater and shopping on 2nd Street? Oh, my goodness, yes. Everybody did. The downtown was crowded every Saturday. There have been rumors over the years that the house was haunted. Any evidence of that when you were living there? No. I had heard that years ago, but I didn't pay any attention to it because nothing ever scared any of us there. Elodie McCready used to own Chuck's Seafood Restaurant on South Beach. She proudly reveals her age. She's 93 and still goes to the Seven Gables house every Tuesday afternoon to serve as a volunteer tour guide. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Florida was the third state to secede from the Union and was the primary supplier of beef to the Confederate Army during the American Civil War. Bill Dudley explores the role of women who maintained the home front during this turbulent time. I think what surprised me the most was how quickly they were ready for the war to be over with. Born and raised near the North Florida town of Madison, Tracy Revels is Associate Professor of History at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. We have this sort of image of the Southern woman who wants to fight to the bitter end, and of course some did. But I would keep turning up these letters that were written at the end of the first year of the war where they would say, okay, honor is satisfied, dear, come home. And I, I like to think that women were just very pragmatic. They realized because they were on the home front and they saw everything deteriorating. In writing her recent book, Grander and Her Daughters, Florida's Women During the Civil War, Revels used diaries, letters, and scrapbooks, what historians call primary sources, to reveal the untold story of women's war experiences. Although parts of 1860s Florida were divided off into farms and plantations, much of the state was still thinly settled. A lot of Florida was still pretty much a howling wilderness. And women in Florida, I think, in a lot of ways, were like women on the frontier out west. They had to be pretty self-reliant, pretty tough, particularly the, and these are women I talk about a lot in the book, the cracker women, the poor sort of ordinary women who would do their chores with a shotgun nearby because you never knew when there might be some sort of predator around. Of all the issues faced by these women, uppermost was the loss of the men in their lives. Suddenly, they were forced to take over the management of farms, stores, and plantations. For some women, this was what they were good at. But then there were other women who, quite frankly, had never had to do these things before. And it was a great mystery to them. And then, of course, for the women who owned slaves, dealing with the slaves and being the chief disciplinarian was something that most of them were not really accustomed to. And there was the strain of maintaining constant vigilance for the well-being of families during a period of upheaval and violence. During the later phases of the war, there were areas that were we might call anarchical. 
there were, within certain counties of Florida, civil wars within counties. Florida Southern College historian Mike Denham. Governor John Milton wrote one of the officials in the Confederate States of America in Richmond. He said that our Western provinces are basically, we, we no longer can keep the public in check. There was a lot of violence everywhere. And one thing that women, especially in Florida, if they were in an area where there had been some skirmishing, like near Pensacola or near Jacksonville, people would just show up at their doorsteps. And they don't know, are these Union soldiers? Are they Confederate soldiers? Are they deserters? Are they up to no good? And there's one woman from West Florida who writes, and I thought this was a uniquely female solution to a problem. She says, I just served them all out of the same spoon. For some women, the war marked a time of questioning, of divided loyalties, or even outright rebellion. While we think of Southern women as you know being sort of like Scarlet and Melanie and Gone with the Wind, they're not all that way. And in Florida, you have a lot of women who are opposed to the war, who object to the war, who don't want their husbands and sons going off to the war. And of course, there's the women that everybody forgets, the slave and the free black women who are looking for freedom, a better life after the war, and often are sort of waging their own little wars on the home front. Many letters show anti-slavery feelings among women leading relatively settled lives on Florida's plantations, even as their husbands were off fighting for the Confederacy. They were just simply tired of having to manage slaves. They were tired of this sort of psychological warfare. There's a letter where a man writes to his wife and he says, I've often heard you tell the slaves that you wish the Yankees had them. Well, that's going to come about soon. And so I, I think that it wasn't that they were raving abolitionist, but they simply realized this is not a good system. It doesn't work very well, and we would be better off not living this way. Stepping into new and unfamiliar roles while struggling to protect themselves and their homes often conflicted between loyalty to nation and family. The women in Revel's book make us challenge some long-held assumptions and Hollywood stereotypes. What Professor Revels does is basically looks at uh, that myth and does what any good historian does, and that is paint a picture of what really existed, and that is a, a far less romanticized view of women in Florida. At one point in my writing, I got to asking myself the question, what is a woman's country? You know, the men talk about, I'm going to fight for my country, whether they're talking about the Union or like Robert E. Lee talking about Virginia. What's a woman's country? At this time, a woman's country is her family, her home life. And so I was really surprised at how quickly some of them were saying, just come home, let's end the war, let's accept defeat, let's just go on with life. Life is more important than these ideals. Historian Tracy Revels, Grander and Her Daughters, Florida's Women During the Civil War, is published by University of South Carolina Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.